Romans 8 verse 13 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this one saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And Father, we humbly ask right now just for your amazing grace, Lord, to continue even as we open your word and seek to hear your voice speaking to us. Lord, you know what that means for me, for each one of us standing here in this room. We pray that even as we stand here, Lord, sort of at attention. Lord, like soldiers ready to receive our marching orders from you as our commander-in-chief, we pray that you'd speak to us, Lord, and that we would humble ourselves under the authority of your word and that you would instruct us and guide us, correct us and train us that we might faithfully serve you here on this earth. Lord, help us. We pray you would bind the devil in any effort to take away from what your voice would say to us Give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church. And we pray that he would be our teacher and instructor this morning as we study it. And we ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, if you knew for certain that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, would that in some way change how you live today? Would that affect what you're doing or maybe what you would choose not to do? Well, that's really, in a sense, what our passage is addressing for us this morning. You could somewhat title this section of Scripture, I think, fairly sort of living in light of eternity because that's what Paul is trying to exhort us and the Roman Christians he's writing to hear about. If you remember just last week in our study, we left off with Paul speaking about our God-given responsibility to pay our taxes. Uh, The last verse we looked at together, he said there in verse 7, render therefore to all their due. Pay taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor. So the Bible they're speaking about basically giving what is due to those whom it's owed to making sure that we fulfill our obligations. Now, with that context and that idea in mind of fulfilling our obligations to others, of uh, responsibly making sure that we give what is due to those to whom it is owed to, that we pay our debts, if you would, he then goes on, verse 8, to then say the first four words, owe no one anything. So in light of that context, 
The Holy Spirit now moves Paul to instruct us next, really not to ever withhold payment in any form, whatever it may be, of what we may owe another party. Other translations render this same verse here, let no debt remain outstanding. Other translations render this, pay your debts as they come due. The idea is that we should responsively, especially all the more as Christians, satisfy all our debts, that we should meet our financial obligations by always paying what is due when it's due. And in full, simply put, the Bible is saying, pay what you owe to whomever it is owed to. God is saying this here as a friendly, loving reminder to us, even as his people. In essence, God is saying when your bills come due, you should pay them. God is saying to us here, if you've used some form of credit or taken a loan for something, then you should make your payments responsibly and on time when they come due so that you don't owe anyone anything. God is reminding us here, if someone has extended you money in order to help you acquire something or to accomplish something, whatever that may be, then it is your obligation before God to make sure that you return to them what is now owed unto them. He says here very simply, owe no man anything. We should not be guilty of withholding money to people or organizations or whatever that may be that we owe it to. Rather, we should as Christians responsibly manage the money that we acquire and receive from the Lord. And the reason for that is so that we can make the payments that are due when they come due. So that we do pay our bills on time, that we do take care of obligations that we have. Wisdom says to us that we should live within our means. Wisdom says to us that we should not be overextending ourselves financially in our lifestyles and our budgets and the way that we live. And integrity would say... If for whatever reason, however it comes about, that we do find ourselves owing something financially, it should be our first priority to pay back what we owe. And to pay back what we owe, hear this, as quickly as possible. And letting that take first precedence even over, and I know this is going to sting for some, pampering ourselves with non-essential things of the affluent American lifestyle. Our first priority, the first precedent should be, I understand you need food on your table, a roof over your head, clothes on your back. I'm not being you know, ridiculous and extreme here, but there is a place where paying what we owe in integrity before God and sincerity towards the one who has let us utilize Maybe their resources, our first precedent should be before pampering ourselves to pay back what we owe and to make efforts to try and do that responsibly and as quickly as possible. The reason is, first of all, that's obedient to the Lord. And secondly, that keeps us in a place of good testimony before other people. Our testimony matters, especially as believers. Now, look, I don't believe, and there are some that do, and uh, you can read commentators who take this tough stance on these particular terms here. I don't believe this is a prohibition in the Bible here against proper or responsible use 
of credit or, or taking a loan in some form. I don't see the Bible as a whole giving prohibitions against lending or borrowing money. However, Scripture does give, especially through the book of Proverbs, which I encourage you to really acquaint yourself with regarding money matters. The Bible does give instruction and principles regarding how we should go about such if we are borrowing or if we are lending or even if we're the one lending to someone or allowing someone to borrow. It even gives very strong cautions of potential pitfalls and real dangers that sincerely exist regarding borrowing money or incurring personal debt. That being said, if it's your conviction as a Christian that you feel strongly that you should owe no one anything and therefore you don't feel it's appropriate to borrow or to take loans but to do everything by operating on cash personally or as a business. Hey, I say to that, praise the Lord. That's a wise way to live, certainly. And I think that's incredible stewardship. And most likely you'll probably spare yourself some extra pain and problems along the way. But I don't think we can overly come against these kind of things here and say, well, that means you you shouldn't take a mortgage and you can't take a car loan. God's simply saying, look, there are responsible ways to do such, but you need to be responsible and make sure you render what is due when it's due in an appropriate way. See, the major problem, if we want to be very honest, is we live particularly in a nation and a culture today, unfortunately, where many have become accustomed to comfortably spending money that they don't have. I think the Greek word for visa may be demon. I'm not certain. You can look that up if you want. We've lived in a nation for so long where people spend money they don't have without any real concern or consciousness about it. That's why we have incredible government debt. That's why we have such incredible personal debt that's out of control. And that debt is a major cause of a lot of stress and fears and anxieties and marriage problems and personal problems. Proverbs 22 verse 7, God says, the borrower is servant to the lender. Listen to what that says, because the Bible says when we owe someone money, it's truly a form of enslavement. We are actually enslaved to that person that we owe that money to in that position. So it robs a life of liberty and freedom that God intends. And I would just say this morning, be careful of the snare of financial debt. Be careful of it, because it is something that holds many people back from God's best and has ruined lives and marriages and families. So thus God says, owe no one anything, but look how he goes on, verse 8, except, he uses a picture now, except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. So using this imagery of, of having a debt and paying what we owe and satisfying our debts, God now says, look, there is one debt, however, he uses a picture now, there is one debt, God says, that we can never fully satisfy. One obligation that we can never do away with altogether and that is the obligation to continuously keep loving one another. To keep rendering and giving to each other the love of God that we've experienced ourselves. That is one personal obligation that we can never totally fulfill. There never comes a time where we should cease loving or think it's no longer our responsibility to keep giving love to one another. That is something we should continuously give. In fact, we could go so far as to say that's a debt that God has put us under. And it's a debt that God never will release us from. And it's an obligation to love others that remains in effect, here's the hard part, no matter what it costs. 
It's an obligation to keep loving and loving and loving and loving no matter what the personal cost and expenses to me to keep loving in certain situations and given circumstances. We are indebted, the Bible says, to extend love, to extend especially the love of Jesus with which he has loved us. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And let us resolve, especially as Christians, to never stop giving to one another the love that we are indebted to give to each other, despite the personal cost that it sometimes does require to keep loving and to keep extending love to a marriage partner or to a child or to a family member or to a friend. Or maybe to somebody in the body of Christ that we've had a, a problem or a difficulty with. And remember, because and, this helps me, I know, remember that loving another is not something that we're doing as a repayment to one another. Because that will never work. But the reason we're indebted to love one another is out of repayment to God's love for us. That will give much more incentive. First John 4 says it this way. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another as a repayment to God for the great love that he has for us. And maybe you say, look, I'm trying to love somebody and it's costing me a lot and I'm broke. The bank is empty. I just can't even find anything. I looked under every rock. I can't even find a nickel to give love to that person anymore. Listen, well, God's resources will never run dry. Ask God to give you his love, his love for a person. And God can do that supernaturally by the work of his spirit in our lives because the fruit of his spirit is love. And God can give you his love to then help love another person and fulfill that continuing payment that we owe them. And remember, God's kingdom is a kingdom of love. That's why he says there at the end of verse 8, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. When we obediently love another person as God asks us to, we're fulfilling the heart of God's law. Because the primary law of the kingdom of God is the law of love. And we are honoring and obeying our king who governs over our lives and who gives an edict that we love each other as citizens of heaven. That's why he says there in verse 8, he who loves another and does this has fulfilled the law. Now he's going to go on to explain what he means by that. Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So look what Paul does here. This is incredibly interesting. Paul shows us that how God's law, when it was first given, when God's law was given to man, was based in God's desire that we show love for other people. Question, let me put it this way. Why did God say you shall not commit adultery? Why did God say you shall not steal? Why did God say you shall not murder? Well, certainly because those things dishonor God. I wouldn't dispute that. 
and certainly because those things are personally destructive in our own lives. But more than that, it's also because to do those things, to commit adultery, to steal, to murder, those things to do them hurts other people. It's unloving. It damages and destroys lives of other people. And God's concern in the aspects of the law that dealt with how we relate to one another, these commandments, God's concern in those things was that by us obeying such, we would be showing love to one another in how we interact. The point very simply is this. If you love other people, the Bible's saying, if you love other people, you won't commit adultery and have sex with someone who's not your spouse. If you love people, then you won't be romantically and sexually involved with a person who's married to someone else. You won't selfishly indulge your own pleasures in a way whereby you destructively betray your own spouse or violate someone else's marriage covenant for a moment's pleasure for yourself and ruin a marriage or wreck a family because that's not loving. If we love people, we won't steal from people. If we love people, we won't justify that we have a right to murder someone to suit our own, in a sense, personal desires. If you love someone, the Bible's saying you won't bear false witness. You won't be dishonest in the way that you communicate or tell lies. If you love someone as God intends, it'll keep you from coveting and jealously envying what they have because you're not enjoying it for yourself. He says there in verse 9, for these commandments that he's just stated... He says, and any other commandment that we could jot down, and there were many, many given by God regarding how we relate to other people, are all, he says, verse 9, look at it there, are all summed up, the summary of them. They could all be summed up, he says, in this one saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So notice there, we are commanded by God to love, it says, our neighbor. Now, very interesting. When you look at the term neighbor there, it's a term, and it should, in a sense, picturesquely bring to our mind, a neighbor is a term that refers to those who are close to us, to those who are nearby to us. That's what we mean when we say, this person's my neighbor. It means they're in close proximity to us. So what the Bible is telling us here is that we should express and extend this love to those who are right around us, to those who are nearest us. See, it's very easy to theoretically talk about love. Oh, I love people. I love the world. And, and it's easy to talk about love. It's hard to demonstrate love. It's hard to express love and to extend love. But the Bible says, love your neighbor. The idea is these are the people we should be loving first and foremost are those who we have access to, to those who are right there in our midst around us because that's here who we can show love most effectively to. Those who we can love the best are those who God has put right within your little world. God says, love the world. Say, okay, I can, I can do that. I'll pray for people and send money here. God says, no. How about you love the people in your world? In that little sphere of life that God's put you into, in your family, with your friends, with your close associates, God says, those are your neighbors. Love them. Remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, love your neighbor. And then they said to him, story of the Good Samaritan, who's my neighbor? And Jesus told that incredible story, which basically demonstrated who our neighbor is and who we should love. It's the people who God brings into our paths. 
as we're journeying along and as we're journeying along and the Lord directs our steps, the Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. So as we're journeying through life and inter- interacting with our family or our friends or our, our, our schoolmates or our co-workers, as we're going through the paths of life each and every day, God's going to bring us into contact right there with people in front of us who need a little attention. Maybe they need care. Maybe they need somebody to just listen to them instead of passing by them and ignoring them. Maybe they need somebody to give some assistance or to help in a various way. See, that's love because love's an action. It's not a word. It's an action. A while ago, the Lord, when I thought of that term, kind of meditated upon it a while, L-O-V-E, the the word love, it began to to mean to me, L-O-V-E, letting others value excel. Letting others value excel. Because see, my problem is my value is what's always excelling in my mind. But to let other people's value excel and, and supersede me, that's God was that's what love is. She's more important than you are. He's more important than you are. They more important than you are. That's what it means to love, to bless, to serve. Because Question to ask yourself. Hey, okay, I want to obey God's word this morning. Great. Who's around you? Who's in your family? Show love for your parents. Show love for your siblings. Show love for your kids. Who's God put in your workplace? Who are your friends? He says, love your neighbor. And look what he says there, as yourself. We often gloss over that, love your neighbor as yourself. The reason God says that, love your neighbor as yourself, is guess why? Because God knows we already love ourselves. See, that's why God uses that analogy there. You go to a, a psychologist's couch and say, look, you need to learn to love yourself. You have to discover yourself. You need to look into yourself. God says, no, they already love themselves. The problem is we love ourselves too much. So God says, as much as you love yourself, Love your neighbor as you already love yourself. See, I love myself incredibly. If I'm hungry, I go get myself something to eat. If I'm thirsty, I go get myself a drink. If I'm cold or hot, I address that. If I want something, I pursue that. And God says, look, in the same way you're consumed with your own concerns and interests, now take that and he says, project that onto other people in the same way you love yourself. So when you're thirsty, if I was loving, I would ask my wife, would you like a drink? If I take care of it, hey, I'm going to do this for myself. I'm, yeah, God's saying, take into consideration other people. Because see, that's love. We have this bizarre romantic view of love. Love is sacrifice. It is devotion. It is service. It is kindness and blessing other people. And he says, express this towards one another. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Look what he says, verse 10 there as well. Love does no harm to its neighbor, another element of love. Therefore, love, again, he says, is the fulfillment of the law. So notice, love values others and considers, therefore, what is best and what is helpful to other people. Uh, you know, To me, that stands out so strongly there, verse 10, love also doesn't do something. He says there, love does no harm to a neighbor. Things like, let's illustrate it this way, things like, Stealing, adultery, dishonesty, murder. What could you boil them down to? They're an absence of love. 
When we do those things as humanity, it's an absence of love. It's an absence certainly of love for God, but even more than that, it's an absence of love for people that allow us to do things that harm and hurt other people. The Bible is saying if we truly begin to love people, we'll treat them properly. We won't do things that will hurt people and harm people and and destroy lives. Genuine love will keep us from doing wrong things to other people. We won't violate boundaries that God has established of what's best for another. We won't injure people and harm people and hurt people. Hey, question this morning to keep our hearts searched with the scripture. Are you perhaps saying that you love a person or love others but then honestly you're treating them in really wrong ways and you're hurting people or you're doing things that are harming other people if so God would say that's not love that's not love God's word challenges us to say look love will not selfishly take or do it at once while damaging and destroying other people and even as Christians we can fall into hypocrisy in this I watch ministries at times fall into hypocrisy. Oh, I love people, I love people, love Jesus. And then they treat people like they're casualties. And they leave people strewn and bleeding and beat up and wounded sheep. And hey, whatever, we'll just get some more. Even as Christians, we can fall into the hypocrisy and the failure of this. He says, love won't do harm to people. Love will help people. It will sacrifice, give and bless and assist. That's why he says here, love is the fulfillment of the law. Because Jesus ushered in a kingdom of love. God demonstrated his love by making sacrifice to bless and entering into our world that we might be benefited and helped through what he did for us. He goes on, verse 11, to say, and do this, notice, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, he says, and the day is at hand. So now God gives to us, look, the motivating factor for why we should, first of all, be loving others. And second of all, why we should be living right or living appropriately in God's sight. He says, why? Because it's a critical time that we're living in. Do you notice the repetition of terms there? He speaks continuously in our verses of things like knowing the time. For our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And he says, the, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Those are all phrases that speak and refer to the imminent and soon return of Jesus Christ. He says there, spiritually, we need to be aware of the time that we're living in. See, whatever time is on a clock and we see what time it is, whatever time is on the clock becomes then what determines and influences what we do or what we don't do. For example, you know, if we roll over and, and see the time on the clock says that it's an hour before we have to be at work or be at school, or whatever, well, that influences, well, for most of us it influences, you need to get out of bed now. You can't stay there in the bed anymore. That clock says you have to respond to it you have to do something so whatever the clock says determines what we do or what we don't do when we see 12 o'clock we say hey that means i have got to put food in my gut that clock says it's lunchtime or that clock says it's 10 o'clock at night that clock says because of what the clock says it means i need to prioritize sleep i need to go to bed because i have to get up so whatever time a clock says whatever time it is affects a person's response it affects their priorities 
what they prioritize and it affects their actions. And God's saying the same applies spiritually. Knowing the time should affect us spiritually. It should affect our priorities. It should affect what we do and don't do. It should affect what our actions are. That's why it's critical to know the times that we're living in, ladies and gentlemen. That's why it's important to be aware of the hour that's at hand because to be unaware or to ignore the current times we're living in is really very detrimental spiritually and eternally. But to know the times in which we're living in is critical to help us in our spiritual lives. And let me simplify it in this way. God's clock is showing both prophetically and circumstantially very clearly that the end is at hand. That the return of Jesus is imminent and he is about to interrupt human history. These are the last days. Quite simply, the time is short and Jesus is coming soon. That's why Paul says here, verse uh, uh, 11 there, our salvation is, look at it, nearer now than when we first believed. Now when he uses that word salvation there, what he's talking about, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, He's referring to the culmination of our salvation experience, the complete fulfillment of the salvation process. Because when we first believed in Jesus Christ at that salvation moment, we were then delivered from the penalty of our sin and we were delivered from the power of sin. But there's coming a time not too far off for you and I as a Christian when we are then going to be fully delivered from the presence of sin. At that moment when we are then in the presence of God in heaven and we receive a new glorified body and at that moment we are then fully experiencing the culmination of the salvation process. So whether it's by being raptured and removed from this earth by Jesus or whether it's by personal death through entry into his presence, either way, either way, listen, either way today if you know Jesus Today, you are one day closer and nearer to both of those than the day you first believed. You are closer to the culmination of your salvation experience. The finish line is closer and it gets closer with each passing day. Now, let me illustrate that. If you're a runner and you see the finish line in the distance there and you're beginning to realize you're getting closer to the finish line do you slow down and slack off because you see the finish line? Well, I, I'm not particularly a runner unless someone's chasing me or uh, I need to chase them for something they stole from me. But typically when a runner sees the finish line, they may be tired, they may be weary, they, you know, but what typically happens when they see the finish line you know you're near to cross over. That's a natural incentive to do what? Give one last push. That's an incentive because you see the finish line nearing. That's an incentive to say, hey, it's almost done. Now is not the time to slow down. Now's not the time to slack off. Now's the time to give it one last oomph, one last push to finish well, to finish the best that I can. The point simply is this spiritually. Today, you are one day closer to your salvation and to the finish line. And because that closing finish line is closer and gets closer every day, there really should never be a reason for a Christian to hit cruise control. 
There should never be a reason for a Christian to justify backsliding because you are closer to heaven and closer to meeting Jesus every single day that passes in your life. We should be continuously being inspired to be ever increasing in our passion and fervency all the more as we see the day approaching because we realize the finish line is near. The last illustration he gives there in our verse, he says the night is far spent and the day is at hand. The imagery there pictures a long dark night that's finally about to be over. And the dawning of a new day is very, very soon. And can I just say, our world has been enduring a long, dark, moral decline for a long time. For a long, long time, God has patiently and mercifully spent years and years allowing mankind to persist in wickedness and in dark behaviors that reject him and despise who he is. And the Bible is saying, and now the day of the Lord Jesus Christ and the return of him back to this earth is on the horizon. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. First Thessalonians 5 speaks about this in greater depth. The Bible is saying spiritually it is darker and later than it has ever been before in human history. And that should have a profound healthy effect upon our urgency and our priority of what it means to live for and to serve Jesus. If we know that the time we are living in is the last days and the culmination of our salvation is nearer than when we first believed and the night is far spent and the day is at hand, that should have an impact upon us. That's why, look at the phrase there in verse 11, that's why he says in the midst of this, it is high time to awake out of sleep because of those things. This is God's way of saying it's time for his people, not just the world. It's time for his people. This is written to Christians. It's time for his people, God says, to wake up, to arouse from the current state of spiritual lethargy and apathy towards the things of God, to awaken out of a condition of spiritual drowsiness that we can all fall into in regards to our spiritual life. There are many who are in a relationship with the Lord and yet they've fallen asleep on Jesus. And this can happen to all of us. You know, the Encyclopedia Britannica defines the word sleep in this way. It says a state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to events taking place. And this is how the Holy Spirit pictures believers can become spiritually. We can lose consciousness of the presence of the Lord. We can lose consciousness of what the Lord is seeking to do and begin to daydream instead about all our earthly pursuits and pleasures and everything in this wonderful world that we live in. We can begin spiritually as we drift asleep to enter into a state of spiritual inactivity where we then just start to cease from spiritual disciplines like reading our Bible and spending time in prayer or attending church to worship or sharing the gospel with other people. We can fall asleep in regards to these things, have a decrease in our responsiveness to what the Lord's doing or what really matters spiritually and eternally. And just like a person who's sleeping, they're still alive. They're just in an altered state of consciousness. 
They're just in a resting state. And we still have spiritual life. We can be born again. We can know Jesus Christ, had a salvation experience, and yet we can be sleepwalking through our Christian life. We're still talking. We're st- you can sleepwalk. You can sleep talk. But we're asleep spiritually. You know, first time I've ever seen this before, and I found it profound. The word sleep that Paul uses there in our text in verse 11 when he says it's time to awake out of our sleep that word sleep in the Greek is the term that's used to give us our English word hypnotized now I find this so interesting consider this unfortunately God says this is sort of what's happened to some Christians is the devil has subtly without people even realizing it sort of look waved other things in front of their eyes and very subtly By waving things in front of the attention of God's people, he has the devil successfully captivated the attention and the interests and the devotion and dedication of Christians and hypnotized Christians spiritually. And I believe that God's spirit in light of this is saying, snap out of it. Wake up. See, sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need the Spirit of God to say, what are you doing? Wake up. Do you realize the hour, the day that you're living and you've been hypnotized? Oh, I'm going to heaven. But has the devil hypnotized you spiritually? With all the worldly affairs and the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, hey, it's time to awaken to the things of God in a fresh way, his spirit is saying to his word. It's time for the church today in the condition it's in, no doubt. I think we would be fools to not say that we need a revival and awakening. We need that. And I would just say for us, even as a group of local Christians here, I want to challenge you. Sincerely ask the Lord. You can chuckle about it and, well, whatever, come on, move on to the next. But I want to challenge you to sincerely ask the Lord, have you become a drowsy Christian? And if you have, then I encourage you to passionately ask the Lord to help you to wake up. That his spirit would fall upon your life to help you to wake up. To wake up to all that God intends. Because see, when you wake up from sleep and you regain your bearings physically, changes happen. Changes happen when you finally wake up out of sleep. That's the same true spiritually. That's what our next verse addresses. Look what, look what he goes on to say there in verse 12. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So just as when a person wakes up, typically they take off the garments they slept in and you put on new garments that are appropriate for whatever your activities of the day are. The Bible's picturing that's what we're to do. He says, let us cast off the works of darkness. Works of darkness. These are sinful practices that people often do in the dark because they don't want people to see what they're doing. So because they know what they're doing is wrong or shameful, oftentimes people practicing sin keep it in the dark. Paul in Ephesians 5 uses the same term, works of darkness, and there he says that it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. And see, the danger is this. These works of darkness, they always yield very dark consequences. 
They, they, they yield a darkening inside a person's soul. They yield dark and painful circumstances. And if you today are involved in any such dark things, again, can I say to you by God's mercy and grace, it's time to wake up. It's time to get out of the dark and make a clean break with those things to make a decision to discontinue any dark works and to bring it into the light and deal with it. Jesus said in John, uh, Revelation chapter 3, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Notice there, the love of Jesus in his words, and Jesus five times to the churches in Revelation, seven churches said to those churches, repent, repent, repent. Repentance isn't just something for unsafe people, folks. Repentance is something for the church. And Jesus in love says, look, would you repent while there's still time to come out of the dark? Today, if anything is in your life that you know is dark and wrong, I encourage you to come out of the dark, to bring it into the light. Look what he says. He goes on, verse 12. He says, and let us also instead put on the armor of light. So cast off the darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, armor is something that's worn by a soldier in battle, right? So what a fitting description. We are in a spiritual battle against sin and against evil. That's why Ephesians 6 talks about putting on the armor of God to withstand the devil and his attacks against us to tempt us and draw us into sin. What else does armor do? Armor protects a person and keeps them safe. And I would say this. Do you know why it's wise to not live in works of darkness and to walk in the light? Do you know why? Because that's a safe way to live. The best way that you can protect your life from a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of harm. Listen, talk to some people who got caught up in some works of darkness about the pain and the hurt and the harm and the suffering that they're going through and others have been affected. And they'll tell you, listen, you keep on the armor of light because it will protect you from regret and destruction and hurt and devastation. You'll keep yourself safe. You walk in the light. Keep yourself safe. Protect yourself. Living in the light is a safe way to live. It's a safe way. It will spare us from many painful afflictions and wounds. He says, verse 13, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and in envy. So God shows there is a proper and honorable way, he's talking to Christians again, for a child of God to live, and that includes not doing Certain things that we clearly know are sinful. Isn't it interesting? He's saying these things to Christians. He says to Christians that we should not be living in revelry and drunkenness. The word revelry there means wild or out of control partying or riotous troublemaking. The word drunkenness is an abuse of alcohol to excess where we lose proper function. The Bible saying a follower of Jesus should not have a lifestyle that's marked by these kind of things. He says not to be living, notice, in lewdness and in lust. So as a Christian, a follower of Christ, we should not be involved in sexual sin or immorality in any form. Whether that's premarital sex, whether that's pornography, whether that's adultery, whether it's homosexuality. He says lewdness there, which is a term that speaks of unbridled perversity and obscene vulgar behavior. It speaks more of an attitude of shameful open participation in sin where you're just parading sin. You don't even have any sensitivity about it anymore. He says here, well, I don't do those things, but he says, well, how about living in strife and envy? 
Those are two words that speak about selfish and mean fighting and jealous competition. And if we were to be honest, even as Christians sometimes, that can characterize our home lives where there's strife and envy. God is saying to us as Christians, we shouldn't be contentious people, fighting and disputing, instigating problems. Again, why? Because behaving in any of these ways is not proper. He says we should walk properly. That's not the becoming nature of a Christ follower. And let me say one more thing. Here's the bottom line. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be caught doing one of those things when Jesus shows up. I don't want to be holding the beer in my hand drunk because I went over the deep end and decided to go back to the old life and have Jesus show up. I don't want to be in a bed with somebody that's not my wife when Jesus shows up. I don't want to be in the midst of causing strife and sowing discord and when Jesus shows up. So these are things, he says, let us walk properly not in these things. Verse 14, he concludes saying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So he says, we're told to continually choose the life of Jesus and refuse the opportunity for our old sinful flesh to fulfill its cravings. First, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That means to put on, again, make a conscious daily, hourly decision to put on Christ. In the same way you get up in the morning, you put on clean, new, fresh garments to begin that day. Every day, I can just speak for myself, I have to consciously, when I wake up, remember, hey, I'm a Christian. Because I wake up feeling like a demon. And if I don't have my devotions, I act like one. I can tell you that too. And every day I got to say, I'm a Christian, that's right. I'm not that old person anymore. I'm a Christian now. So I need to put on a Christ-like attitude and embrace His way of thinking, put on His values, His desires. I need to daily choose to live like who I am. I'm a Christian now. And we have to do that every day. It's a choice. And more than that, he says, secondly, we have to proactively guard ourselves so that we can resist sin, prepare to avoid sin. Look what he says, our last term there, make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. That word provision there is a term that spoke of setting up a military headquarters as a base of operations. So the Bible is saying to us, look as a Christian, don't set up a base of operations for your old sin nature to be able to fulfill its cravings and its desires because it will launch attacks. And if you set up a base of operations in any way for your flesh, it will launch its missions and it will take ground and take territory very quickly and drag you back into the old life. So make no provision for the flesh reminds us we cannot give any opportunity for our sinful flesh to have its desires and to fulfill its lusts. If you provide a chance for yourself to sin, more than likely, you're going to do it. You know, I, I talk to people, I don't understand. I don't, we, I don't understand why we keep sleeping together. I, I, I don't understand why we keep, I just, I don't know what it is. We just get so, care- and then you ask questions. Well, what do you do? Are, are you, well, I mean, I understand we were just hanging out all alone in her apartment, on the couch, in the dark, cuddling, watching a movie, and we ended up falling into sexual sin. Duh! Oh, that's rocket science. I don't understand. 
I do. It's called biology. Hormones 101. You can pray before and after. You'll still indulge it. Oh, I mean, I really got an issue with alcohol. I don't understand. I just keep struggling. And I mean, well, why are you keeping a six pack in your fridge still? Why, why are you going to the bar still? Look, if you give yourself a base of operations for sin, it's going to launch its attack and you're going to fall. You're going to fail. So the Bible says, don't even make provision for it. Much of avoiding sin, ladies and gentlemen, hear me. I'm not a very spiritual guy, but much of avoiding sin is very practical. It's very practical. If you know you struggle with something, you have a weakness with something, put up boundaries in your life. You know, if, if I send my wife to the mall and she has no cash on hand, I'm safe. There's no provision for her to indulge. But if I give her a 20, I give her a 40, and she knows I love her, she's got provision. She's going to indulge. Don't provide opportunity for yourself to sin. Yes, pray. Yes, read your Bible. But be practical. Be practical. Be radical. Do what you need to do. Burn the bridges of access. If you need to end relationships, if you need to do things to destroy old paths, don't give your flesh a chance to capitalize. Amen?